was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know $500,000 to in debt. $192 million. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. So once a year, you go to the doctor, right? They take your blood pressure. Maybe they prick your finger and they take a little blood and they give you a sense of your cholesterol level. Maybe if you go to one of those fancy healthcare facilities, they get you to run on a treadmill for a while, see how your heart's doing. You get a checkup. The same thing should be true of your business. When we look at your business through the Value Builder score, we're going to look at it through eight key drivers that acquirers care about. Whether you want to sell your business immediately or in 10, 20 years from now, these are the eight factors that business buyers care about. Knowing them now will help you maximize the value of your business going forward. Just go to valuebuilder.com and take the questionnaire. So the next interview almost never happened. It's with a guy named Stefan Roseman. And when we first got on the call and we were doing kind of the preamble before we got talking, he said, you know, I can't really talk a lot about Spy and how Bole acquired them because it's shrouded in all sorts of secrecy and privacy and there's all sorts of confidentiality agreements that I can't really reveal. And I thought, you know, like, do I cancel the interview? But, you know, it was already set up. And I thought, you know, let's go forward with it. And I'm so glad I did because Stefan is a real wealth of, of knowledge when it comes to building the value of a company. What he is is an activist investor in a positive way. He goes in, builds a position in a company, and builds it up to with the view of selling it for more than he paid for it. And he shared some really interesting value-building lessons. A couple that sort of I took away are the power of a brand in particular and how he distinguished between normal brands and what he calls heritage brands. I love this quote. He said, build a house you want to live in. And of course, that's a reference to you know a, a builder's sort of uh, analogy, but he's thinking about it in the context of a business. In other words, build a business with a view that you would want to run it forever and you're going to have the maximum choices to sell it when and if you want to. He also introduces a concept called anti-fragile. Have a listen for how he defines that. I got him to describe two things he did at... Uh, at Spy to anti-fragile his company before they sold it to Bole. I think you're really going to enjoy this interview. Here to tell you the rest is Stefan Roseman. Stefan Roseman, welcome to Build to Sell Radio. Good morning. It's great to have you here. Tell me how you came to be running Spy Optic. I'm a, first of all, I'm a big fan. I'm, I'm a snowboarder and skier. And so I've known the Spy brand for a long time. I have a pair downstairs that I could bring out. Uh, I'm a big fan. So how did you come to run this company? Um, so I am a longtime uh, private and public market investor. And Spy was a company that I became acquainted with uh, post IPO. So they went public in 2004 and it hit my radar as a newly public company uh, back then. Um, I got to know the business. And uh, as I got to know the business, I identified some opportunities uh, for improvement within the business. It was a nascent public company. Um, and at the time, the, uh, uh, the, the folks running it had done an amazing job of building a brand from scratch. They were tremendous brand visionaries. And um, as I got to know the business well, I saw the opportunities within the company that would, I believe, allow the company to get to that next level. 
Um, and uh, I became an investor. Again, it was public market, uh, uh, publicly traded equity at that point. It was in the public market. So I was able to um, uh, build a position. I, in fact, became the larger shareholder at the time and uh, started working with the board and the management team to help them uh, understand what I believe to be true uh, as to the opportunities for the company. And that goes back go- to 2005, 2006. How do you go from having some shares? Like I have some shares in Google. I have some shares in Apple, but that doesn't mean I'm running the company. How do you go from buying some shares in a public company to, it sounds like you built up a a significant position being a big shareholder. Did did that entitle you to sort of some FaceTime with the management team, the other board members, the other shareholders? Like how did you go from being a passive investor to being the, the CEO? Um, yeah, so there's a long history, um, certainly in the U.S., although uh, globally this is true, but certainly more so U.S. and Western Europe, uh, Canada, of uh, shareholders who become more active or, to wit, activists uh, within a company. So I have a long history as a turnaround investor um, and have historically become more involved. So uh, if I could uh, rewind the tape a little pre-spy, I yeah. come from an operational background. Prior to my investing career, I had grown up in my family's businesses and had uh, uh, really had a front row seat to uh, business, business operations, uh, largely focused at the time on consumer businesses. And that is how, um, how I grew up. So when I made the transition into finance uh, and ultimately ended up on the buy side or as an investor, uh, my focus really started to hone in on, on that area on business improvement and what one can do to identify opportunities within a company to improve balance sheet, to improve margins, profitability, uh, cash flow, cash conversion, et cetera. And um, so, so with that as a background, when you ask the question, how did I uh, come to be so intimately involved with SPY? Yeah. Um, it started with <clears throat> back in uh, 05, 06, a, um, uh, effectively a business plan to uh, help solve for some of the problems I identified in the business and some of the things that I saw were an opportunity to, and I'll use the colloquialism, fix, to fix the business uh, and to to make the business better. Um, And, you know, uh, being a shareholder itself isn't uh, sufficient. Uh, There's uh, the notion of being influential, right? So uh, you'll see activism. If you take it away from what I was doing with SPY, certainly in the U.S. markets, you'll see shareholders with much, much larger companies, in fact, large and mega cap uh, companies, where they might only own one or 2% of the equity, but as investors, they're fairly influential investors given the expertise they bring to the table. And you will see other shareholders coalesce around them. And you've seen that with the likes of Carl Icahn, Bill Ackman, David Einhorn, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- the notion is uh, one more of, of, of influence than it is of, of, of size. Uh, in this case, I happen to be uh, a pretty substantial investor in SPY uh, during that period. Um, but it's also what you bring to the table in terms of uh, a dialogue uh, for fixing the business. You know, and are you, inv- sorry, Stephen, right, are you investing your, your own money or have you got other people who's like, Hey, Stefan's great here. I'm going to give you some money. Can you invest it on my behalf or is it all your own cash? No, it's both. So it's, uh, it's my capital as well as uh, outside investors capital. Uh, folks who uh, have uh, entrusted me over the years with their capital. Uh, We have run funds that have focused specifically on this strategy uh, where we have intended to be activists and fix the businesses and and improve the businesses, Uh, which, by the way, 
uh, ultimately is a benefit to all shareholders. And what I was about to say is if you go back in time, everybody, uh, many of your listeners will recall a period during the 80s where the notion of quote unquote activism uh, was not a positive one. It was, uh, you know, there was the notion of the colloquialism of corporate raiders uh, where uh, at the time, there were industry participants or market participants who were getting involved with companies really to strip out valuable assets of the companies and leave a less valuable shell. Activism, you know, fast forward 30 years, uh, activism has a very different uh, patina today. Activism is truly about a collaborative effort, collaborative with the, the activist investor, other shareholders within the company, and even management to really improve the company for everybody's benefit, for all stakeholders. So not just shareholders, uh, but also employees of the business and the company's business partners, enterprise partners. And forgive my ignorance on this, but I'm curious to know when, when you build a position, do like, how do you show up and say, uh, listen to me guys, I know what I'm talking about. Like, do you, is it just your pedigree and your reputation that they come to know and therefore they're like, oh, this guy knows what he's talking about. You know, I'd like to listen to him. Or do you force them to listen to you based on the position you're building up in the company? Do you, do you see what I'm, I'm saying? Like, is it, yeah. is it one of forcing over, like legally forcing them to listen yeah. or, or influencing them? Yeah. So uh, said differently, I think uh, if I could recast that question is, am I knocking on the door and getting the door open for me with a warm, in, uh, a, a warm introduction as I come into the house or am I knocking the door down? Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Cause my um, sense is a guy like Carl Ica knocks the door down. Um, I, that is typically the case uh, that well, well documented, right? That no, no inside yeah. baseball for me. It's well documented. Oh. Uh, that is often the case. Um, so in my case, it has been both. So there has been a, um, a well-trodden path, of course, for both in this country. And what I have found is that ultimately having a constructive and active dialogue with the management team, with the board, is a more constructive starting point. Um, I would be lying to you if I said to you that I didn't have uh, boards and management teams tell me to go pound sand uh, in the past. Uh, and that is when uh, you, uh, you, you exercise your rights as a shareholder a little more aggressively. Um, but... Um, you know, typically it is a well-articulated, well-presented, well-documented position as to why you're making the suggestions you're making, right? Uh, these are not capricious decisions or capricious suggestions that I'm showing up with uh, that are, 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 you know, uh, banal and unimportant. Uh, they, they are well-researched, well-thought-through, and people can reasonably disagree with them. That's okay, but they aren't without basis and they aren't without a lot of supporting facts and data and documents. Got it. Got it. So, so you saw something in Spy, which you both liked, but also that you thought you could, you could make an impact. What did you like about the company? So uh, Spy has an incredible heritage and an incredible brand. So uh, the folks who had started the company really did an amazing job in establishing a brand in the cradle of action sports in North America. So uh, and arguably globally. Uh, so Southern California has a long heritage and a long pedigree as being the birthplace for well-known action brands, uh, whether it's Quicksilver on the board short and apparel side, uh, whether it's Oakley, also a sunglass company. Uh, Spy, of course, our, our topic du jour today. Um, um, you go down the, the list of companies across action sports in what we call core sports, which uh, includes skateboarding, snowboarding, uh, surfing, and then, of course, all of the extensions of that. So uh, land-based sports like motocross, BMX, et cetera. So um, it came from a really, really advantageous birthplace. And you had uh, folks who had a vision for a brand to uh, really establish a brand that would speak to its constituency. So 
when they gave birth to the brand, the idea was, is this is a brand that's a little more irreverent than the establishment. It yeah. When, the, I, when I went on the website, Stefan, there's a guy giving the finger to the camera. <laughs> it was great. I was like, that, wow, that's, that's not exactly <laughs> what you expect from a, from a big corporate you know, brand. But uh, uh, it's great. Go to, it, is it spy.com or spylens? That was spy the website. Spyoptics.com. Spy spy yeah, it's awesome. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I, you know, I would say uh, that what the uh, image you're referring to with the stiff middle finger uh, is probably one of the more PG uh, efforts. Oh, is that right? Before. Yeah. <laughs> so right. There, we, we definitely had, uh, you know, a little more edgy than that even. So, um, yeah, so it's an irrelevant, was, it's a reverent brand. Correct. And that irreverence was important, right? So um, the, um, you know, I'll, 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 and this is a, uh, uh, an industry specific uh, or even arguably a sector specific consumer goods comment, which is, uh, you know, two things. One, I will point out that people generally don't want to wear their father or mother's brand, right? <laughs> that is the yeah. truism as old as the ages. That has nothing to do with spy. Uh, that has to do with what you can go across denim and footwear and you, you go down all the categories in consumer sure. goods. It's true for restaurant concepts. And so what you have is, is you have a little bit of a generational change and that next generation is looking for something different so they can make their mark on the world and show everybody, demonstrate to everybody how they're so much different than everybody, than, than, their, uh, than the last generation. Um, so that's one point. Separately, the definition of fashion, and, and this was an expression that I had heard growing up in, uh, in the business and had heard from my father at one point, the definition of fashion is whatever you don't have hanging in your closet. Right. Um, so in the case of, uh, of, of sunglasses or, or take it away from sunglasses, let's say, let's say you have a closet of uh, white Oxford button down shirts and all of a sudden, courtesy of uh, the late uh, and amazing Steve Jobs, black turtlenecks become de rigueur and you don't own any black turtlenecks. Well, by definition, you have to go out at that point if you're going to be uh, in vogue and in keeping with what is the fashion of the day, you would go out and buy black turtlenecks. Right. We're talking about the again, this this proverbial uh, definition of fashion, right? Uh, it's whatever you don't have in your closet. So brands across categories, including eyewear, um, become important to have a voice and identity that's distinct and separate from what came before them, uh, both for that fashion component and also because of that notion that we don't wanna wear what our, our, our parents wore. We wanna but, identify. But, but brands are also fickle things, right? As you well point out, right? At, at times they are in favor and, and desirable. I'm trying to think of what's hot right now. I'm totally out of the loop with all this fashion stuff. So <laughs> I can't think of anything off the top of my head. But, but they do kind of come in and out of fashion. As an investor, how do you uh, ensure that that brand isn't going to become irrelevant? No, and, and, and that is a fair point. And what I'll do is, you know, I'll, uh, with all uh, due respect to some of these amazing brands that I'll reference, I mean, if you think about brands uh, over the, uh, the, the, the last number of decades, you can think about brands that have blown up, and I mean that in a very positive way, brands that have become really mainstream, uh, front and center, and important as brands. Abercrombie and Fitch, Timberland, uh, Ralph Lauren, and they're all phenomenal brands that have had at times, or still have, great management teams, great operators, great visionaries. Um, but at some point you become a little bit of a victim of your own success. So it's your point about the fickleness of the market. The market definitely moves on at some point. Now there are exceptions. I'll, I'll provide the asterisk or, or caveat to that. The asterisk is there are heritage brands. Um, and if a firm establishes itself firmly as a heritage brand, while it's still susceptible to the vagaries of the market and fashion, 
it has a it, it enjoys a muted cycle. So let me give you examples of that. Levi's jeans. There was an era about 10 years ago. So everybody knows Levi's, of course, Levi's have been around since the 1800s. Uh, started in Northern California as uh, as as, coal, as uh, gold miners dungarees. Uh, really started as a tool brand. Right, it became um, really very much a heritage brand as it moved into fashion decades and decades later. Well, there was a period about 10, 12 years ago where um, fa expensive fashion denim became in vogue, uh, including uh, denim with a lot of flourishes and you know bedazzled jeans. Levi's fell out of favor during that period because Levi's that was not Levi's. That's not who they were. That's not who they were going to be. However, uh, when the fashion of the high flourish jeans cycled, Levi's was still there as your heritage brand, right? In eyewear, uh, you see that. You see that. Uh, uh, you, you see that. Frankly, even in in, uh, in in footwear, right? So if you think about Nike's positioning, which of course Nike is a seemingly impenetrable fortress across many categories of sporting goods, um, there have been other brands that have. Uh, that have made very significant inroads into both the footwear <clears throat> and the um, the action or the sorry the activewear market against Nike. Uh, Lululemon comes to mind, even though Nike was there with compression uh, attire before Lululemon. Uh, there have been specialty brands, Hoka One in footwear, for example. Even though Nike, uh, of course, is there in shoes as its uh, uh, as its original business uh, under Phil Knight, right? In, in terms of Nike's birth, so there is a fashion component, and your fickleness that, that you're pointing out is very real. Um, and it's important to know who you are as a brand and how to manage that cycle, what your expectations okay. are. Okay, so you look at Spy. And they've got this middle finger of reverence. How do you, because again, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at it from the standpoint of a lot of our listeners would be uh, getting ready to sell their company and, and they would have built a brand and part of the conversation, part of the value they're trying to sell is that that, that brand has shelf life. It has longevity. It's going to you know, continue and grow and build and so forth. Um, as on the other side of the table, being the buyer investor in that company, how did you evaluate the the longevity, the strength, the staying power of Spy's brand? Um, so, one, uh, when you look at a brand, the beauty of consumer goods is that they um, consumer goods companies stand on the street corner, the proverbial street corner, and raise their hand and wave their flag and make themselves known. Sure. And that's true when you go to the channels of distribution. So if you go back, certainly uh, Spy is, uh, it'll be 26 years old next month. We celebrated our 25th anniversary last year. Um, if you go back 25, 26 years ago, the internet was not a factor with respect to distribution where it is today. But if you went to retailers and if you went to the, uh, the natural organic places you would find a brand like Spy, um, it was very much a brand at the forefront. It was visibly at the forefront, i.e., you could see the frames on people's faces. You could see the sunglasses on people's faces. You could see the goggle straps on the mountain, uh, on snowboarders and skiers. So uh, right off the bat, there's an awareness, right? There's a, there's a, a level of awareness that um, comes to the fore as you're doing research and as you're getting to know a brand and to, to your point specifically, as you're evaluating the veracity of the brand, you're able to observe how that brand interacts in the wild as it were. Now, fast forward to today, and it's a little more complicated. It's a little more nuanced. So, um, uh, and I'll stand by my complicated comment, but I'll go back to that. It's more nuanced today because there are a lot of companies out there today uh, in the consumer world that are able to make big splashes with respect to their brand. And then the question is, as a business owner, business operator, and or potential acquirer 
Am I translating that awareness to revenue and ultimately cash flow and profitability? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are two different things. So we have plenty of examples in recent history over the last decade of brands that enjoyed very high awareness, but didn't necessarily have the staying power as companies. So um, what, you, what I would say to your listener is the good news about not being Nike, right? If we're going to use Nike as our, our, sure. uh, as our placeholder for somebody who's enjoyed global domination and done an amazing job, um, you have the promise and upside in the story of growth in the future. And that is what typically is valuable to an acquirer. Um, and typically, if you're already at a point where you're talking to an acquirer, you have likely demonstrated um, some, um, some awareness and some expertise in really demonstrating that to the market, demonstrating that you're a brand that's relevant. Presumably that is how you got to a point where you're enjoying a conversation with an acquirer. So for the benefit of your, your, your listeners, your readers, for somebody reading this transcript, what I would say is, is that I would want to be able to demonstrate that the brand matters and, and use the, the, and I'll use the management expression of KPI, use the KPIs or metrics that are going to be, relevant to your industry or your product category that you can point to, right? So for consumable goods, for example, it's going to be uh, repeat purchase is going to be far more important. Repeat purchase is always important. You want repeat customers, but for consumable goods, being able to point to frequency of purchase is, is, is really important, right? You don't buy denim every month. You know, you don't buy jeans or sneakers or, or sunglasses every month, but for example, cosmetics, uh, you might be a monthly or even weekly consumer of that category. So, mm-hmm the folks listening to this will know what's important to their segment. And I would really focus and emphasize on being able to demonstrate that strength in that market segment. So in, in, to go back to spy again, this is curious for me because you saw this brand, but admittedly that, that may, you know, it was obviously something that you it liked and, and, and were struck by, but, but sunglasses, to your point, and, and, and goggles are not something that you're buying every day. What was the repeat purchase opportunity that you saw with Spy? So um, with, uh, with Spy, and remember, Spy started as uh, we weren't the incumbent, right? So even predating my involvement, uh, we were the quote-unquote disruptor, right? Not necessarily a term that would have been used back then, but we were effectively the disruptor, taking share from the folks that were already in the market. And... Uh, what you had is you had an expanding universe and awareness of action sports. You had the rise of, of, of digital entertainment, digital distribution of, of, of the sports, not the products. The products came, the product distribution uh, came later from a digital standpoint. But you started to have specialty segments on TV uh, and ultimately online when you started getting video streaming online of, um, of some of these uh, action sports. So BMX, motocross, skiing, snowboarding, and it came to the fore. It was kind of that era of Red Bull, Monster Energy, right? Mm-hmm. We're all part of that same cohort of action sports brands. Of course, those two are beverage brands, but very much played in that same exact uh, sandbox of, of brands that were riding this wave of awareness and participation in action sports. So, Um, You you had a couple of factors. So uh, one, you benefit from a generational uh, advantage. So if you think about what was happening then, uh, you had uh, Gen X was a relatively small generation behind the baby boomers. Uh, We were certainly not at that time a baby boomer brand per se. We were 
uh, certainly at the fringes, but we were going after a Gen X customer. Um, and then you have the benefit of Gen Y coming up right behind Gen X, participating in all these sports that were becoming more accessible to people, right? So all of a sudden through the, the magic of uh, digital distribution of media, a teenager sitting at home in Ohio could fantasize about surfing big waves, and see it live real time, not just a monthly magazine, which is two dimensional, uh, but actually see it live real time online or on cable or on satellite TV and watch surf competitions from California or Hawaii, watch skate competitions from California. And th there was this whole rise of action sports brands. So Quicksilver was part of that cohort, for example, obviously participating from a surf standpoint, uh, or at least their heritage was on the surf side. You had Billabong coming out of Australia at the time. Um, and what I saw was a groundswell of interest. And it was a movement away from uh, what I'll call the, what had been the traditional sports and pastimes from uh, several decades earlier, which of course was golf and tennis and, you know, the quote unquote country club sports. And you had a, a an increasingly younger aging demographic. And what I mean by that is because it sounds like it's uh, oxymoronic or, uh, or contradictory. A, a 50 year old today participates in sports in a way and, and, and in life and act, is active in a way that's very different than a 50 year old 30, 40 years ago. Um, and that trend started uh, and, and had started prior to my involvement in the spy, but it was becoming very clear that we were becoming younger and healthier as an aging population, allowing a, an elongated participation in sports. And to wit, when you go to uh, a surf spot today, you go to California or, or on the East Coast, you're up in Massachusetts uh, or, or Maine, New York, off the, uh, Long Island, and you look at the cohort of people who are surfing, it, the, the age demographic spans from teenagers to folks in their 60s. Um, and that wouldn't necessarily have been the case back then. So that was something that was important to me. It was, uh, I saw a growing demographic, growing participation and growing interest in the category into which SPY was selling. Got it. How did you add, add value to SPY? Like how did you build its value over time? What were the, what were the big things that you did to improve yeah, so, its value? Um, so, um, uh, you know, a lot of uh, what I'll reference is from its time as a public company, well-documented as a public company. We, of course, had uh, we reported quarterly like every other public company. And we had uh, we had made some business decisions 15, 20 years ago uh, that uh, had, had, had come back to haunt us in the sense that they weren't as productive from a company as uh, they could have been. Um, they were made from a place of, uh, of, of, of tremendous optimism, as many and I should say, uh, as many mistakes often do, right? I mean, so, uh, you know, typically we make uh, everybody, whether you're an investor, you're an operator, you're an operator uh, uh, who's also an investor, we make mistakes in our businesses, right? We make mistakes in life. We make decisions that don't pan out as we intend. That is part of life. It's part of the human condition. It's part of learning and becoming better. Um, and the company in its younger days had made some um uh, to my mind at the time, some mistakes in terms of how it was positioning itself, uh, where it was expending resources globally, how it was thinking about um, distribution globally. Can and, you give an example? Uh, yeah, so we had early on, we had a focus on on dominating uh, the, the, the rest of our, what we call ROW, the rest of the world, meaning outside of the United States. Um, and we hadn't even fully penetrated in the U.S. yet. We had tremendous opportunities to penetrate in the U.S., um, and that's a, uh, you know, a concrete example of somewhere where you go back again, 15 years ago, and we were, uh, as a public company, well-documented, we were spending money growing in Asia and Australia, yet we still have plenty of opportunities to grow in the United States, right? So these are the types of, when I say companies make mistakes or operators, management teams make mistakes, they make mistakes. It comes from a place of, 
of, um, of, of, of good intent uh, in, in almost every instance. Um, but it might just be a blind spot for that management team or that operator. So that was an area where uh, I, at the time, wanted the company to refocus. So when I became involved uh, back in 05, 06, post-IPO, uh, that was one of my big areas of focus. Let's take our limited resource. Let's be clear. Every company, irrespective of size, has a, um, has a, uh, uh, a limited a finite amount of resources, whether it's human or financial. Sure. And my point to the company at the time was, let's take our finite resources and focus on dominating where we have this massive groundswell of interest and tailwind within North America, within the United States, within a market we already understand really well. Let's own that market. We have plenty of competition uh, to take on. We can take shelf space from that competition. Let's refocus there. So that's a concrete example to your question uh, about where and how um, you know, I add value when I come into a company, just seeing it through a different lens and having the advantage of being able to take my business perspective across many different industries, many different companies um, and many different uh, marketplaces and just applying it and, and, and really turning the solution or turning the problem over in my hands, if you will, almost like a Rubik's cube and looking at different solutions to the problem in a way that somebody who just comes from footwear or just comes from the restaurant business or just comes from eyewear might not be able to do. What else did you do in that tenure to really change and turn the business around? Because in your own sort of admission, you are known as a turnaround specialist. Uh, one of the things was focus on North America. Don't go chasing a place when you've got enough market share here in your backyard. What else did you focus on that enabled you to turn the business around such that Bollet was, you know, was keen to buy it? Yeah. So, um, uh, and again, this, and, and some of my comments are going to go back to the, uh, the, the pre, um, not the most recent efforts, just pre-acquisition, but I would go back sure. a little further. Um, it's, uh, it's a little easier to discuss, uh, some of what we're doing as a public company because it's well-documented published in the, in the public filings at the time. Um, so for example, capital efficiency. Um, so one of the decisions the company had made, uh, and again, came from a, a, a place of, of, of concern and care, and I understand the gestalt of why they were making the decision, uh, it just proved to be the wrong decision. We had bought our factories in Italy. So as you are undoubtedly aware, most companies want to be in the business of managing brand IP. Uh, so let's go back to Nike, the example we keep using. So Nike um, contracts with factories to make to, to create the designs, to, to, to bring to life the designs that it thinks of in its, in its skunk works within its labs in, 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 in Oregon, right? Nike is not in the business of owning heavy assets uh, to pour rubber, to make rubber soles. They contract <laughs> with companies that do that, and they really focus on the IP of, of R&D, developing great product that the consumer's going to want, lots of consumer research, right? And this goes into the R&D process. And then bringing those products that they believe have legs um, to life by having them manufactured by manufacturing partners elsewhere. That is the norm. That is the center of the fairway for most branded companies, whether it's luxury goods, eyewear, footwear, denim, or whatever the case sure. is. The decision we had made and why I referenced capital efficiency is uh, we actually made the decision way, way, way back when, again, to, uh, to acquire our factory in Italy. Um, and so we, we, we took, again, we, this predates my involvement with the company, just to be clear, but we institutionally took the tack that we were going to own the factors of production to better control our sourcing. Um, and that's just from a capital efficiency standpoint, that's not particularly capital efficient. Um, you want to drive capital efficiency by 
looking for a way to uh, minimize capital intensity while maximizing the return from the products you're bringing to market, right? And this is true for any industry, by the way. This translates across, it's not just true of consumer goods, it's true of uh, services, businesses, uh, et cetera. And, um, and so that's another example of where we were able to um, really pivot and where I added value in getting us to focus in a place um, of, of capital, uh, focus the business on capital efficiency to take us away from a place where we were tying up capital and trying to manage a business, a continent away, right, from the West Coast of the United States to, to Italy, um, trying to manage that business remotely. And um, that proved to be a, um, a, a tremendously successful decision. Um, uh, so on the upside, you get, you get the capital out of the factory and you can you know, put it into building the brand. I guess the, the other side of the coin, though, is that you, and the, I guess the other argument is that you're now kind of dependent on, uh, you know, uh, another supplier to supply the, the lenses and the, and the product. Did, how did how did you kind of make sure that you weren't becoming too dependent on a single supplier? Something we talk a lot about uh, to our, uh, to our audience. Yeah. You bring up a tremendously important point and the, the point is one of multi-sourcing. So um, don't rely on a single source for factors of production. Um, and that is a, an important point of course, for diversification, for safety and, 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 and robustness of your business. Um, and one of the things uh, that I think a lot about with respect to businesses, the notion of making a business anti-fragile. Um, and that is not the, uh, the opposite of robust. Um, anti-fragile means let's take away anything in the business, anything within the business process that potentially can be a liability to the business. So single sourcing is a great example of that. Um, if you single source any product or any raw input for your products uh, as part of your factory production, you run the risk of having a supplier that, um, that, that at some point disappoints you or fails you. So to your point, it is a critically important facet of building a business that has more value, which is focus on places where the business might be fragile and focus on making the business anti-fragile. And there's a lot that's been written on this. This is not something, this is not a notion, a management notion that I invented. Uh, this is something that I believe in though, um, that I'm a huge follower and believer in. Yeah. So what other examples would there be of, of places where companies become too fragile and, and they need to make sure they're anti-fragile? Yeah. So, um, uh, so depending on the size of the business, it might also be your labor pool. So subjecting uh, your whole business to a labor pool that's geographically concentrated. So um, a, a, an easy example would be if you run a uh, uh, call center business and you have hundred percent of your employees, for example, uh, in, uh, in Southern California, where we know California, of course, uh, is, is Southern California anyway, suffers from being on San Andreas Fault and suffers from the potential of earthquakes. And it's one of these things where um, you have to really think about the difference between frequency and severity. That's an insurance concept. Uh, the frequency might be low, i.e. we don't get earthquakes all that often, but the severity can be quite high. And if you have a severe enough earthquake that it damages your building or damages the telecom infrastructure in this fictional example of a call center business, um, you're in a lot of trouble because 100% of your employees are in one geographically concentrated area. So it, it really rhymes with that idea of not single sourcing. If you have a big enough employee base, let's diversify where your employees are. Because one, you diversify the hiring dynamics and the search dynamics for when you're finding people. Um, every major metro market or every employment um, uh, base, every employment area, has a dynamic, a, a micro, um, microeconomic factors 
that are determinant for how that economy is doing, right? So think about the difference between, for example, Seattle, which has been enjoying this tremendous tech boom over the last bunch of years, and it's very hard to hire people in Seattle because the demand is voracious, right? It's good. These large, well-funded tech companies are sucking up all the available uh, bodies that are come to work, where um, contradictory to that might be a, um, uh, for example, um, a market where, uh, and you would look right now, perhaps the oil patch. So, a uh, uh, somewhere in Texas where suffering from a weak commodity and, you know, there's well-documented layoffs. So again, in this fictional example, you would diversify your business between say Southern California and Texas or Seattle and, 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 and Dallas or Houston or whatnot. And, and that's that notion of, again, anti-fragile. So you look across the business by functional area and look at where your, um, your, your, your potential problems are, where your weaknesses might lie and really address those. And, and, you know, the old expression, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Um, so, you know, let's see if we can address them. Now, sometimes you won't be able to address them because if you have a company with a smaller number of employees and you really have one headquarters and uh, the company size doesn't really allow for you to have multiple headquarters, um, then, then what you do is you try within that framework to minimize the potential uh, of, of business interruption and business risk, right? So back to the call center example, perhaps you pay for a backup call center uh, or backup um, uh, real estate 50 miles away that in the event of a disruption. So we did that. I'm based in New York and, uh, uh, you know, certainly every company in New York uh, has because of the nature of New York being obviously uh, a globally important city and historically been a, a, a target for terror activities and whatnot. Every company in New York um, has, or every company of any size, has backup facilities, often in New Jersey or up in Connecticut, somewhere that's geographically reachable, where they can move some portion of their workforce that's remote and take them off site in the event that there's a disruption to getting into New York City. I guess there are some people listening to this saying, okay, he, he runs way bigger companies than I, than I have because, you know, I've got my business that's whatever, 10 employees, 20 employees, 40 employees. And, and I hear what you're saying about and, and by the way, I, I totally believe, I agree with you on this idea of avoiding single source supply and so forth. But there's always this trade-off for, for entrepreneurs around, um, you know, on one hand, doing everything to make your business anti-fragile, uh, which involves investment. And on the, on the other side of the coin, all these things that we invest in, like multiple locations and backup facilities, cost money. And so they bring down the EBITDA of the business. And so how is, as, a, as an operator, as a turnaround guy, do you reconcile those two? Do you see how those two things compete with one another? And, and if so, how do you reconcile them as, a, as, a, as someone who's focused on building value into companies? Absolutely. And, and within the, um, the vein of the nature of, uh, of, of your show, uh, you know, in terms of built to sell, it's mm-hmm. really asking, um, you're asking yourself as an operator, what's important to my would-be buyer? What's important to this industry? Um, what can this business bring to the table that would be of tremendous value to a buyer that they might not have or they don't have enough of? Maybe it's a new brand, right? So maybe it's having a differentiated brand uh, that, that is, um, has a different core market. Maybe skews younger, skews older, skews healthier, skew, whatever the case may be. Um, perhaps it's, in fact, a, um, a different supply base. Uh, so it allows a, an established manufacturing company on acquisition to instantly diversify its sourcing because you as a target, you, you, know, you as the operator in your business as a potential target for an acquirer has a vastly different 
supply base. And, and you know that in your industry, within your business, within your industry, that's going to prove to be attractive. So I hear you. And there's no doubt you're titrating between spending more money and building robustness or anti-fragility. Um, and it's really knowing where you are within your business individually. Are you preparing your business for a sale? Um, because of course, uh, the decisions you make will uh, will be influenced or informed by your timing, no doubt. Um, but it's also the dynamics of your specific business or industry and what might prove to be valuable. And, um, you know, one of the things that, um, uh, you know, you and I discussed uh, a little bit before the show was the importance of not just putting on, um, not making the business look better just for the purpose of a sale, Build, um, you know, this expression I use with my management teams all the time, build the house you want to live in. Build the business the way you think the business should be built so that the business reflects the best practices, best thinking that you can bring to the table with respect to your specific industry, your specific company. That will always prove to be attractive to a potential acquirer. And, you know, one of the mistakes I see uh, potential sellers of a company make is uh, they will put... Um, they will gussy up the business. They'll fix up the business just for the sale and they'll make the business look pretty just to attract more suitors or potentially a higher bid. And in my experience, in almost every instance, that proves to be the wrong decision because one, the potential acquirer tends to see through that thin veneer because um, looking at historical financials, you can get a pretty good sense as to when those changes were made. Mm -hmm. And it becomes pretty abundantly clear that those changes were made very recently. Um, and then you just have to substantiate. It doesn't put you on great footing with the potential acquirer. Make the decisions that are substantive, that are um, and, and can be substantiated to a buyer, but because they're the good decisions, the right decisions for your company. And in my experience as a seller of a business, and I have sold a lot of businesses, you will get paid for that over and over and over again. Um, and, uh, you know, there are no regrets that back to this notion of build the house you want to live in. I love that expression. I've never heard it before, but it's tremendous. As you look at the acquisition, I know we have to be a bit delicate around the, the Bole acquisition of, of, of Spy, but as you think about um, that acquisition, are, are you able to talk at, at least at a high level about what you, you think Bole saw in you, what, what it was that was strategic for them? Um, yeah. So, and just to be clear, not, uh, uh, not deputized to speak for Bole or, or, right. uh, or how they're thinking about the acquisition. Uh, what I can speak to is, is where spy is and where it's been in the marketplace. You know, the beauty of being back to my earlier point, a consumer goods companies were very observable. And what you see in spy today is a brand with, um, uh, with heritage back to my point, I made it a little bit ago, which is we've been around 25 years. So we have authenticity and uh, a standing, if you will, in the action sports market globally, where we're recognized as a brand, where we're recognized as a company, and we're well understood within our core constituency, our core customer base for what we are. And I think any acquirer looking at SPY would have seen that. Um, you know, to wit, uh, I can share with you that uh, I've seen photographs, I've had, this has been shared many, many times, photographs of folks who are wearing who are off skiing or snowboarding, wearing um, helmets from one manufacturer, goggles from another manufacturer, and plastered on the side of their helmet 
is a spy sticker. <laughs> a spy sticker, nice. <laughs> right? And, and the funny thing is they're not wearing anything, uh, you know, in, in, in those examples, they weren't wearing anything spy other than the sticker, right? Because the brand stands for something to them. Um, and, and, and you see that and, you know, there are those brands that have that power within the marketplace. And, and, and by the way, we're seeing it now, um, just to give you an analog, because some of your listeners might be familiar with the brand called Allbirds. Um, Allbirds was a brand, and I'm only referencing them because we're talking about Nike, that came out of nowhere, more or less, um, started in Northern California to tackle, um, uh, to, to bring ESG-friendly, green-friendly footwear to market. And what they hmm. use is it's a sustainable model. They bring, uh, they, they develop footwear using wool from sheep. You don't think of wool as a natural material or, or a typical material for shoes. Um, and they have absolutely killed it. Um, they are the footwear of choice in the whole tech community, uh, the whole startup community. I have yet to meet with somebody that works in and around tech uh, that isn't wearing Allbirds. And if I do a meeting and there's a half a dozen people in the meeting, I will tell you half of them are wearing Allbirds as footwear, even with suits, even with slacks. And they are um, they are sneakers that are have just become very much the rigor in that community. So again, this idea that where you build a tribe and a brand. So when you ask about Spy, I point to that same idea. Um, Spy has had a tremendous tribe around its brand. I can sense another investment coming. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Fantastic. Um, you've been very generous with your time, Stefan, and I really, uh, I, I can tell that you have a tremendous wealth of experience in this area, both in the, in the buy side and sell side. So it's just enormously valuable for our listeners. I appreciate you spending the time with us. Where, where can people reach out if, if they wanted to connect with you? Is there, do you have a Twitter following or LinkedIn or what's the best way for people to reach out? Uh, indeed, LinkedIn would be the uh, best place. I am, uh, certainly findable uh, on LinkedIn and um, I can uh, provide you, if it's helpful, provide you with the, uh, the link uh, that you can then share with the folks in the podcast. That, yeah, that would be great. And it's Stefan. Let me to make sure I'm getting the, the spelling S-T-E-F-A-N-E. Is that correct? No. So it's uh, S-T-E-P-H-E-N. My apologies. I had it wrong. I think no, I spelled it phonetically in front of me as opposed to uh, actually looking at the document. So No, no <laughs> worries. Awesome. No worries. Stephen and Rosen. it's Roseman, R-O-S-E-M-A-N. Awesome. Uh, we'll put that in the show notes as well. Stefan, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, indeed, John. It was a pleasure and uh, nice meeting you. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.